after the sixth championship, things were beyond our control. Because it would have it would have been suicidal at that point in their careers to bring back uh, Pippen, Steve Kerr, Rodman, Ron Harper. Their market value individually was going to be too high. They they weren't going to be worth the money they were going to get in the market. So when we realized that we were going to have to go into a rebuild, I went to Phil and said, offered me the opportunity to come back the next year. But he but he said, I don't want to go through a rebuild. I don't want to coach a bad team. And, you know, that was the end. It just came to an end on its own. You know, had, had Michael been healthy and wanted to come back, it, I, I don't doubt that Krause could have rebuilt another championship team in a couple of years. For all your Chicago hot button sports topics. What time is it? Dance and With yours truly, Charles Prodigy Ritchie, here on the Crunch Time Podcast. Files. Are you ready? Let's get it all! Welcome everybody to this edition here of Crunch Time here with me, Charles Project Ritchie. I will be going solo this afternoon as we are getting ready to wrap up the finale of the last dance coverage on the Chicago Bulls dynasty. A lot of people when watch it would make the argument when watching throughout the series. I mean, it was supposed to be about like the 97-98 Bulls uh, championship year and the years before that when they started learning to win together, but as the series went on, it had paid a lot of pictures in people's minds. It seemed to be a little bit more about Michael Jordan and his career instead. All the struggles that he went through uh, when coming in to the league. Uh, remember, his career with the Bulls, he never missed the playoffs, but they went for a lot of mediocre years and just uh, wanted to be on the same level eventually with guys like Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, his goal was to be in that same spotlight uh, with those two teams as the Lakers and Celtics have did in the 80s. Obviously, that was one of his inspiring uh, motives when he came in. And you saw right there throughout these 10 episodes when we uh, watch uh, how much the, the strain a little bit was, the, the burden that came with the territory. I mean, not so much the competitiveness but the outside distractions and the noise that people were starting to follow on whether it was Jordan with uh gambling right there him, him starting to like uh just just he was just so dead hard thirsty to want to compete but at the same time too also I mean with the loss of his father right there so he actually found the guy and Gus let who was actually one of the head of the security guards uh, throughout this documentary. And you saw how much of a right-hand man he was for Jordan right there and how much he described him as like a father figure to him. So pretty much, I mean, ever since he lost his uh, father, James, uh, I mean, he, he, he later on went on to have that life after, I mean, with... Uh, Gus, and you saw how much he meant to him and how much he needed to make sure he was on his side a lot. And he he was definitely, you saw right here throughout the series, I mean, one thing we, we already knew about Michael Jordan already, I mean, aside from like the competitiveness, the business entrepreneur he was, the genius that he was, I mean, we always heard the stories before, about how Michael Jordan would like to surround himself around smart people. And boy, did we see that. I mean, he, he made sure he had people around him that kept him uh, honed in, I mean, if, if you will. And you, you saw everything right there. I mean, it, it was around this time, I mean, when you look at it, I mean, Gus right here especially, who's actually the security guards at the Chicago Bulls uh, United Center. And I want to say it's Chicago State. I'm not too sure about that, but... More so around the United Center, how much he uh, stood out for them. He made sure he protected Jordan. 
And you, you just saw everything, what he meant and how crucial he was. I mean, for, for out that time, when he stepped away from the game after the 93 season, surprisingly, and a lot of people still want to make a conspiracy that, well, Commissioner David Sturr decided to suspend him uh, for 18 months and just kind of like advising him probably wise to step away from the game of basketball and kind of just get yourself to recoup and get yourself in the right mental frame of mind. I mean, a lot of it, too, I mean... I, w- I definitely highly thought that going into this documentary, that that was one of the things with it. Because when you look at when he was uh, murdered back in uh, July, and I mean, you look at all the facts, and then like when his body was found, I mean, to right there, you saw how much the emotion it was on Jordan, the level of stress and strain that it took on him, and how much it, it, it was going to be hard to be playing basketball without him. I mean, he was always there in his corner for pretty much a lot of success, his championships. And it it was just uh, hard to even fathom trying to compete. And, I mean, at the same time, too, I mean, Jordan, right there, he had to find himself. But I think a lot of things that stood out throughout this documentary, I mean, mean, you look at, like, obviously, Jordan was obviously a little hesitant about what was going to be seen. Uh, being captured throughout this documentary. I- I'm sure, well, when looking back at in hindsight, I'm sure he wasn't just thinking about him, but also the rest of his teammates, like Sky Pippen. Sky Pippen seemed to be painted in a bad light in many instances on this documentary. I mean, whether it was uh, being underpaid or just signing a cheap contract, he was not to advise not to sign, which he did. I mean, but the bigger moments, I mean, when you look at a guy like Sky Pippen was, aside from the migraine, when he had migraine game seven of the 1990 Eastern Conference Finals against the bad boy Detroit Pistons, that was the year, I mean, that previous summer right there, the Bulls actually finally decided to start hitting up the weights. And the Pistons were still, they were starting to get towards the end of their run, but at the same time, still, they were still playing and peak championship condition when they came rolling for the playoffs. Because remember, they did struggle the year before. I mean, for for us times, there was a little bit of doubt if they were even going to be a championship quality team. I mean, that, that that's a team who should have three-peated in their minds. I mean, they claim they came so close to being the Lakers about two years prior to that, but still, Derry knew that the toughness the mental fortitude it was going to take, and how much they needed to like be a force of nature, especially on a guy like Jordan right there. You saw when how close they came right there, and Pippen, I think, couldn't play that game or the second half, whatever it was, but there was a little bit of like hesitation. I mean, athletes, I can't really speak what it's like to be playing on a migraine, I mean, for that. And he was obviously in a lot of pain, Throughout that, and I, I just, I just really start to look at right now. I mean, then you also go fast forward later on to 1994 in the second round. So basically, the Eastern Conference uh, semifinals won their first year without Jordan. I mean, he's already made up his mind. He's playing baseball. He, he has no desire or intention. And think about coming back to the game of basketball at that point. So pretty much he's already still just playing catch-up, getting himself in the mental right frame of mind. So you look at that game three right there. That was another instance. And where throughout the season, when they were doing a real good job working with Phil Jackson's triangle offense, and you saw how much, I mean, of a great team they were. I mean, they were the third seed that year. So they, they dropped down a few notches. Obviously, the Knicks took advantage. I think they were the best uh, team in the East at that point. And so they were a lot more hungry right there. And knowing darn sure and well that they are going to be having to face the Bulls without Jordan, this was their opportunity. This was their moment to seize a title. So in Game 3, when they're sitting on the sidelines... 
and they had and Phil Jackson decides to go up with the play, drop the play for Tony Kukoc to hit the game winning shot. Pippen's already like frustrated on the sideline, and pretty much after being asked a couple times, going back and forth, he pretty much says he's out. And to say that he would do it again, that he admitted in interviews throughout the series, listen, I like Sky Pippen. I think he's definitely one of the most respectable players out there. But at the end of the day, there's no way you could hide from this. I mean, at the, at the same time, too, I mean, I just feel like right now, you know what, listen, you made your bed, you had your opportunities to be in the stock, Mary, a lot more. Of course, it wasn't portrayed out to your liking, but that was the, the deal here. I mean, at the same time, you... Everyone knew that there was going to be some stuff being put out to the surface, whether you liked it or not, that was going to come out of this, how they were functioning as a unit, and nothing was going to be all rosy throughout the series. And even still, too, delaying like his uh, back surgery until his one surgery until after the fifth championship pretty much close to the start of the regular season. He said he didn't want to like ruin the summer because of how he's getting so underpaid by the Bulls. I mean, listen, you made your choice. And you know what? If we got to be reminded of that and people going to see the real you, I'm sorry, Scotty. I mean, there's just nothing really that can be said about that. At the end of the day, you're, you've been a great contributor with that team. You've been a great right-hand man for that squad. But even your own teammates, even like guys like Bill Cartwright or a, a couple other people, I mean, even Horace Grant, who even got lost in the frustration when dealing with Jordan as a teammate for all those years, having to play with Pippen, at the end of the day, you let a, a lot of guys down. And I, I just feel right here, this was just not this was just not the same group. At the end of the day. I mean, I, I maintain the record right now. I want to ask you fans right now who are out here tuning in on this Crunch Time podcast here with me, Charles Bradge, Richie. Uh, I want to hear your opinions on this. And I put out on social media before, and I even said, I do believe, like, the Bulls, I mean, should Michael Jordan have not stepped away? I really do believe what would happen was, they will have won four in a row. Then the next year, they will have gotten tripped up. Probably, they will have probably lost that Magic team. Listen, Shaq was a lot better shape around that time. It was around that time, though, but surely he did start to add a little bit more weight. He got heavier once he got to the Lakers. Don't get me wrong. But he was still fast as a cat. He also had a great assistant, Penny Harway, right there. Penny Hardaway, who was another phenomenal player in the NBA, especially being one of Shaq's uh, teammates here. And and I just really feel like right now what he did, I mean, he, he was just a phenomenal guy at the end of the day. And um, I, I really look at him right now. I mean, he was a great Robin the Shack at that time. But at the same time, I think the biggest difference was too Horace Grant, who got so frustrated with the fact that even like it was being documented on ESPN that he was looking at it, is that, well, I always felt like people looking at our team, they should have realized, yeah, it was Jordan Pippen, but. What about Horace Grant being like the third duel? And he was kind of being overlooked a lot. This guy was a four-time all-defensive NBA player, Horace Grant right here. And he uh, did his stuff, but there was a lot of beef with him and Jordan. So when you look at, I mean, from those perspectives right there, I mean, you had a lot of stuff going on. I mean, and of course, like I said, with uh, Shaquille O'Neal, his teammate... Anthony Hardaway in that 94-95 season, averaging 60 points again, uh, picked up about almost 5 points more the next year with 20.9, so about 21 points per game. Uh, I mean, 
But remember, around that time when it did go down, Jordan came back to the last quarter of the season. I think it was like around St. Paddy's Day when he decided to come out of retirement. That's where he saw him in the number 45. And he was tributing that to his dad. Obviously, with playing baseball in the minors. But just wanted to pay a little bit more respect to him when he came back. You saw how shooken up he was. And it took him a while to get back that winning uh, taste, that, that fervor that he was missing for so long. So if you guys want to get in the conversation, if you guys want to call in for this podcast, I welcome you. I'm here to take all your questions. I want to hear your thoughts, your opinions. Feel free to leave a comment on the On Deck, on deck uh, Facebook page right here. Me, Charles Brad's Richie. Or you can even follow me on social media, on Twitter and Instagram, as long as my uh, partner in crime, uh, Reese Ruler, who he is absent right now. He's got some things he's got to take care of. You can follow us at Pride Richie at On Deck CSR. At Mass Steel Nation for the Mass Steel Podcast it, on Twitter, it is at Mass Steel CGR. And then you can also check us out on Anchor and Spotify. Crunch Time with Charles Project Richie, as well as Mixcloud, Charles Project Richie. So let's go, let's do a little bit more uh, digging on here on this as we uh, continue to move along here. So, in this episode series right now, when we start off the final two episodes, the first episode being episode nine. So, now we're talking about Chicago Bulls going up against Reggie Miller and the Indiana Pacers right there. And and in between, after like about like the first uh, four games of that series, you bounce back a year before their last championship, the 1997 NBA Finals right there. And I got to tell you, both those teams... The Pacers and the Jazz, boy, did they go to war on and those series right there. Definitely, I think uh, one of Jordan's most uh, grueling uh, battles he ever had to endure in his basketball career. And you saw right there how much uh, he really had to pick up a lot of load before that time. I mean, the year before, I mean, don't forget, I mean, with the Utah Jazz, the benefit about that, they were at home. Uh, and I'm not going to lie to you. I mean, a lot of people say the Jazz were like the Bulls' toughest opponent because they had to face them back-to-back years. I'm not sure if I'm going to go there. I'm, gonna, I'm not sure if I'm going to say they were the toughest. I'll probably say like the toughest opponent they ever had to face in the NBA Finals aside from that. I'll probably go with the Phoenix Suns, even though they did not face them two years in a row. The Suns team was another team they really had to play uh Defense on, and they score one of the lowest points in the fourth quarter when they clinched that game for their first uh, three-peat. And the reason why I, I feel that a little bit more, because one, you look at two, around that time, where Jordan was at mentally and with his teammates and the spotlight, I mean, he was getting burnt out about the questions with his gambling issues. But at the same time, too, he also had to get talked into playing on the Dream Team uh, he wasn't comfortable about the, about the fact with playing with Isaiah Thomas. That's when they had uh, their ultimate falling out right there. And they were just not too fond of each other. Let's just call it what it is. Max Johnson and Larry Bird were talked into talk, talked themselves into uh, making a run for that international event. And it was a way for them to go out and be remembered in the annals of NBA history. So Max Johnson did a whale job recruiting him, but... You look at too. I mean, one of the biggest things we know is once they uh, dominated and they uh, kicked ass and actually won the gold medal for the USA. What happens after they came back? Phil Jackson had to uh, tweak his practices uh, more particular to Jordan and Pippen. So the, the team they were having more two day practices while Jordan and Pippen were getting it taken easy and having one of days, and that seemed to be a, pr- a problem with Horace Grant. And uh, Horace Grant, who's uh, definitely beyond frustrated, who's one of the teams who felt burnt out. I mean, you also look at another guy like Craig Codges right there, who's an uh, activist right there around this time, trying to stand up for a lot of minority, uh, black issues that was going on, race discrimination. A lot of people definitely felt he got uh, snubbed off this team somehow and out of the NBA. I mean, the last you uh, heard of uh, Craig Hodges, I think, in the NBA in his uh, career 
was after 1992. So he basically uh, played, I mean, in the NBA for 10 seasons. I mean, at that point, it was basically kind of uh, did not get a chance to extend it further. He, he was a two-time NBA champion with them. But, it, again, I mean, Horace Grant right there, I mean, you saw how much, uh, how pumped up he was when they were able to beat Michael Jordan and the Bulls. Michael Jordan's only uh, playoff loss when in that zone where it was uh, winning as champions, but I don't really count that one that much because that was still more of a Rusty Jordan as we saw. He didn't start breaking out number 23 towards the end of that series uh, once I mean, they are like, uh, had their back to the ropes. So, I mean, Jordan, in my opinion, when I look back at his NBA career, he was more reborn the following year in the 1995-96 season where he saw this miraculous run here. And MJ, I mean, to his credit, I mean, wh- when you look at things, and like I said, they will have won their first four. They will have four-peated. They will have got tripped up in 95 if not losing the Magic, they will probably lost to the Rockets. But then they would have got back. I think Jerry Krause would have put together the squad. He would have still gotten Dennis Rodman. I was asked this by a friend of mine. And he, he believes that Jordan, I mean, he he did the smart move by stepping away. He had to prepare his body. You could saw how much of the punishment he was taking. But I still argue if he doesn't step away and he's not distracted... They went four in a row. They they lose in ninety five, but then they threepeat again, and I think that's it. After that, I think in ninety nine, as we're all looking for out the series, I mean, as we later go to find out that Jerry Reinsdorf, as you just heard in the opening of this us uh, before the start of this podcast, he was saying that he looked at how the Boston Celtics run with Larry Bird and Kevin McHale. And all those guys, how their run ended, and he did not want that to be uh, them. And uh, he definitely, I mean, was like, uh, feel like their market value was going to be way too high for them to try and keep. It was going to be uh, too true pricey right there. And I, I just I just feel like right there, I mean... I, when you hear all the stuff like by uh, Jerry Krause saying, I don't care if you go A2 or no, you win the championship, you're gone no matter what. I mean, the, the thing was, too, even Phil Jackson even echoed the Jerry Reinsworth was that, well, I mean, even if I do come back, I don't want to be coaching a team that's on a rebuild. And I just feel like right there, I mean, we're trying to coach team on the rebuild. The bottom line was the damage was already done by Jerry Krause. I don't think uh, Phil Jackson was going to be like uh, all that thrilled knowing that Krause was still lurking around in the picture, still looming in the organization. And it's just, you know what, it was their time to go. I will say this. I mean, I mean... After they won their sixth championship, it was nice to at least see Sky Pippen give some credit to Jerry Krause, kind of squash uh, some of their beef that they pri- they probably had previously, and just acknowledge what they did for the organization. I mean, they they, they had a peaceful sixth championship celebration, and you really start to wonder. I mean, what if? And Jordan was definitely pissed off not having the opportunity to at least try and like talk to everybody on the team, the roster, or the coaching staff. At least try and give it one more run. One more run and at least like see what happens. And if we lose along the way, hey, nothing we could do about it. I mean, it's like uh, we, we lose until we run out of gas, basically. What he was saying. And I, I just feel like right there, when you look at that celebration right there, a lot of things were at peace. It, it was just a bad relationship that was heading on divorce. And the damage was beyond repair. So let's get back into the Indiana Pacers series right there. We heard uh, Reggie Miller in this uh, series. He said like uh, when he first uh, played Jordan, I think back in his rookie year, uh, he I think this had to be his first season, 1987, 1988. 
he basically was outscoring Michael Jordan in the first half, and he came up to Michael Jordan and said, yeah, you're Michael Jordan, the guy who walks on water. <laughs> so the story of that game was Reggie Miller only gets shut down the two points in the second half while Jordan snaps off, and Michael Jordan comes up to the, Miller and says, Dover talk trash to black Jesus. So from that point on, Reggie Miller, he said, you know what? The only thing I was ever going to call him was either Jordan, Black Jesus, or that cat, basically. and uh, or, or that black cat, excuse me. So <laughs> that right there, they had like a history right there that was brewing for a long time. I mean, you saw later on, like around 93, their, their first three-peat year, there was a game... And where one of the Pacers made a steal on the Bulls, Jordan was chasing him up and down the court, um, knocked the ball off the rim, but then Miller was able to tip it back in. He uh, bumped into Jordan and got in Jordan's face. He kind of ticked him off right there. So that was part of like uh, where their trash talk, their rivalry started right there from that moment. And uh, there you go. So we, we look at it right there. Then to go into the... 97-98 Eastern Conference Finals. I mean, at that point. I mean, you look at it right there and you see what they were doing here. All, all the things right there. I mean, the Pacers, in my opinion, were a surprise team that year. I mean, even get that far. And this was uh, Larry Bird's first year as a coach. I mean, in that year. And I was just really surprised right there when we saw it what Larry Bird, how magnificent he did as a coach. He brought the Pacers to the third seed. They were a playoff team before, but they weren't to the extent on that level that year. And I just really uh, look at it, and I just uh, think, like, you know, how good they were. Obviously, Larry Bird wanted to be coach of the year his uh, first uh, season. I mean, uh, with the Indiana Pacers, you saw how much... Uh, he he was able to get players to buy in. But at the same time, too, I, he definitely relished in the fact of being one of the people trying to knock Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls off, too. I mean, when you go back as far as his playing career. So this is a guy who's coming off uh, five years of retirement. Uh, decides to give coaching a try, uh, which I was really surprised at. But he did a, a masterful job. Because when you think about it, his his three years in the league, every year that he was uh, coaching that team, I believe they went to the Eastern Conference Finals every year. I mean, they finally uh, kicked the door down, and they were able to go to the NBA Finals. Unfortunately, they lost to the LA Lakers in the 2000 NBA Finals. I mean, Larry Bird was a pretty good executive in his own right as well, but I think he was definitely more... Uh, a sound coach right there. And definitely made a lot of sense right there, too. When you look at a guy like Larry Bird, his origins being Indiana right there, and what he was able to, I mean, just growing up in that town, as much as people revere him as Boston Celtic, remember, he's still an Indiana boy at the end of the day for what he was able to do. And he, he just had a lot of pride, a lot of heart, a lot of integrity, no nonsense. One of the original trash talkers of this game. I think Jordan slightly respected his game a little bit more. I mean, they would Magic. I think Magic was probably number two. So I'd probably say Larry, him and Larry Bird connected a lot more on that level. And you saw the fabric right there in that and what made their relationship so special. So, I mean... Obviously, right there, I mean, that 98 series right there, I mean, you look at it right there, you had guys like Jalen Rose, uh, you had uh, on there too. Aside from that, let's get to the roster right now. I'm going to pull it up right now in here, just a second. You're listening to Crunch Time with me, Charles Prize Richie. So I'm going solo. I'm without my partner in crime, Reese the Ruler. He is uh, going through some stuff right now. Uh, so I just want to say some prayers, love, and shout outs. Hope, uh, Everything gets better for you, my man. Look forward to having you back on uh, soon, if and when that happens. But, I mean, you look at this roster right here. I mean, you had the Davis brothers on here, too. You had Antonio and Dale Davis. Antonio, who was the power forward, and Dale Davis was a center right here. 
I mean, you also had uh, Fred Hoiberg. I mean, not bad, but then you also have familiar foe on the former Nick and Mark Jackson. Then, like I said, you also had Chris Mullen on here. You had Jalen Rose, who we see on TV a lot more. So, I mean, those guys right there, they definitely believe they had the camaraderie. They had the squad. They had the personality to go toe-to-toe and the toughness to try and be one of the first teams to knock out a full-season bowl squad. I mean, it was different with the Magic, like I said. I mean, Jordan didn't come back to a late stretch. There are barely three games over 500 around that time when Jordan did decide to uh, lace lace up his uh, sneakers and come back into the game. But this series right here, I mean, that was back and forth right there. I mean, look, look at that finals right there, that Eastern Conference finals. And no one gave up. I mean, more so the the most humiliating loss, I mean, for the Bulls in that series. I mean, not humiliating, but I remember because it was Memorial Day weekend. It was a Monday. And it came down to a last shot. Reggie Miller pretty much hit the game-winning three. But the last shot, Michael Jordan still had a chance to hit a game-winning three-pointer right there. And spun in and out of the basket. Almost went in. So what happens? You go back to Chicago. Game 5. Take care of business. Losing game 6. And what does Jordan decide to do? He decides to pull out the Joel Namath guarantee that they're going to win. Simply because it's back in Chicago. And, and you know Jordan's will to win here. So I, I ask you right now. when you When you look back at... I mean, throughout the stock, Mary, which teammate of the Chicago Bulls that was playing along, alongside Michael Jordan probably got a little bit more heat or stood out a little bit more. They kind of got rubbed the wrong way. Who do you think got rubbed the wrong way? Who do you think looked bad? Either way, like it or not, I do think Pippen, listen, he he has moments to defend himself a little bit properly. He could have gotten a lot more involved in this series. Uh, I'm not really showing too much sympathy for the guy. I mean, listen, I get it, but at the same time, you cannot take back what went down. It happened, and this is something you're going to have to live with and you're going to have to own up to. And I just I just think it was unfortunate the way it had to go down, but at the same time, at the end of the day, Pippen was a guy who felt like he did enough to win over the trust of his teammates and do enough to be a leader, and I just feel like he felt like he was gaining uh, slighted in a way. Where it just, why was he being passed up? And I, I just I just feel right now for uh, Pippen, listen, one of the greatest uh, assistants ever here in this game, but you made your own bed, my man. And I just, I just feel right now, it's just you, you had all things right now to get yourself in here and, and try and correct some of these wrongs. So the Chicago Bulls, they do end up winning, ousting the Pacers in the seventh game. They had to really uh, work their asses off for this one, as they actually uh, were able to pull away and. And win that uh, contest in Game 7, 88-83. Now it sets up the rematch of the Utah Jazz. And the Utah Jazz, who was on a nice little hot streak that year. I mean, this is a team right here who had a pretty good, phenomenal record at home when we look at everything. I mean, Utah Jazz, I mean, by this point... When we uh, look at it here, they haven't lost a game at home since, I mean, around this time, the end of February. I mean, more so like uh, in the regular season. And then when you uh, start the playoffs, too. I mean, they they were just a, a force. I mean, they, they, they beat the Rockets in five games. They won. They had a gentleman sweep against the Spurs. Swept the Lakers. And they felt like more intense 
than ever to try and beat this Bulls team. I'm going to say this. That was not the best version of the Jazz, in my opinion. I don't think so. And the only reason why I say that, simply because of this reason. Don't get me wrong. Game one, I mean, they ousted the Bulls in overtime. I mean, the Bulls were able to manage to tie it in regulation, but they fell that point they were able to steal game two uh, split the series get home court steal home court advantage from them but the way they humiliated them in game three against the jazz 50 i mean 96 to 54 96 to 54 i'm not sure where that ranks as far as the all-time blowouts in nba finals history but that was bad either way you look at it I mean, even had the head coach, Jerry Sloan, just like look at the press conference. I'm not sure if he was joking or not, but I mean, just looking at like the final, like a box score, it's like, this is all? I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you pretty much got your butts handed right there. And if, in my opinion, when I watched that series, that game three right there is where the Bulls took the heart and soul out of the Jazz. They ripped it out of their chest. They pretty much stepped on it. This was not the same Jazz team from the year before. Because I'll tell you, even though the Jazz team were the road team in that series the year before, they were able to push the Bulls to the limits in each game. And that was such a hard-fought tooth and nail series. Where you think about the game winner by Michael Jordan, ironically on the guy who called him out during his retirement, and Brian Russell right there. And he just basically just kind of calls Michael Jordan out and just says, Yo, Jordan, it's like, you know, why didn't you just uh, retire? I mean, it's like, you know, if I ever see you on the floor, if I ever try and see you and, and I'm out there guarding you, I mean, you better be ready for them. I mean, for me. I mean, this is a guy right here who uh, did a lot right here. And Jordan seemed to, like, make a mental note of him in his head and he remembered him from a long while even like at his Hall of Fame speech when he was uh, talking there he even said like you know what it's like you know what you remember that little conversation we had back when I was uh, playing baseball you guys came here in Chicago while you were playing the Bulls and and I was a White Sox player I was having a, a minor league baseball game and it goes like well you know what you're gonna get your chance to try and guard me. What happens? Ends up paying the game winner on Brian Russell in game one, 97 fouls. And ironically, too, believe it or not, the game clinching bucket of game number six, where the Bulls had to be forced to go on the road after winning two out three at home, was able to like uh, slightly uh, get Brian Russell off him. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but what do you guys think? Do you guys believe that was a push-off or not? I mean, when, when you saw that. Did Michael Jordan push him? I mean, he looked at it and he said, hell no, I don't think so. I definitely feel like right now, like what happened was, is that he uh, definitely just felt like right there, it's just like, listen, it's just, you know what? He was just trying to get him off him. I don't really think it was that big a deal. I mean, the way he was making it out, but you take every advantage you could get. I mean, Jordan, I mean, kind of similarly, like in 93, I mean, if you remember before, John Paxson ended up hitting the game winning three-pointer to clinch the first three-peat. Remember what happened? Jordan scored the first point. I think they brought him within two, and then when he hit the three, put him within a point. And then later on, a defensive stop by Horace Grant, and they were able to win the title. And that's how that ended up happening. So, again, I mean, then you go into there. Let's go into the celebration right now. So, everyone, they're all... I mean, you figure for a team right here who was all stressed out, mentally drained, and hearing what they heard all along last year was that... If, if you think that right now, it's like, you know, we're going to let this nonsense go on where Jerry Krause has made his point pretty much clear that him and Phil Jackson, 
Phil Jackson is like, you're going to have to leave town either way. They did not let that bother him. Michael Jordan was so emphatically uh, happy and relieved that they got six championships. You better darn sure believe throughout that year. I mean, it wasn't just the fact that it was second to three people. Remember, who were some of those idols when he came into the NBA? Match Johnson and Larry Bird. Guess what? Match Johnson had five championship rings in his all-time NBA career as a player. Jordan was able to pass Magic with six. And I, I think that's another reason I think a lot of people tend to forget is like how much that meant to him. It, it was just, it's one thing to tie him the year earlier when you get five but don't forget, think for a moment that he wasn't in the back of his mind somewhere. Remember, Magic Johnson is already like long beyond retired at this point. I mean, legitimately since the 1990-91 season. Even though he did make that brief comeback in the 96 season. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, you, you look back at the time when they were playing Barcelona. I mean, and just playing for the USA men's basketball dream team. And you had that little uh, scrimmage in practice. And the teams they had going at uh, one-on-one, up and down the court. I mean, you saw right there. I mean, basically, it was just basically just trying to see, like, if Michael Jordan could grab the torch from uh, Magic Johnson and take it from him. And pretty much, uh, Michael Jordan just pretty much kind of just, like, uh, just let him know. It's like, listen, it's like. What you did in the NBA was great, but guess what? There's a new sheriff in town, and boy, there was. I mean, let's think about this before we get to any of these championships. Joram was already thinking about possibly retiring if Magic Johnson had won back-to-back championships. So let's just say if they lost to the Pistons, and the Pistons will have won three in a row. I'm not sure if he would have continued on. I mean, that was one of his motivating factors. But then again, who knows? But... In this documentary, when you saw this stuff right there, and another thing that came up a lot of the way too, which gets uh, brought back up in this series, was Dennis Rodman here. Dennis Rodman, who was reportedly missing after game three, after they put the beat down on the Jazz, he's not in practice with his teammates. Instead, we we learn we go to Lair learn to find out that he's on on TNT and WCW wrestling programming on Monday Nitro with Hulk Hogan. By that time, Hollywood Hulk Hogan in his third year, leader of the NWO. I mean, basically, Rodzilla. Remember, him and Hulk Hogan worked before that. If you remember three years up prior to that, if you guys want to look it up on the WWE Network, if you go look at a 1995 Bash the Beach uh, pay-per-view, I believe Dennis Rodman was in the corner for Hulk Hogan when he was still in the yellow and red colors, defending his WCW Heavyweight Championship against Big Van Vader. So remember that. There's a little history lesson right there, too. So they did pair up before, and I think Hulk Hogan uh, recognized that. And when you listen to some of those uh, documentaries, including with Eric Bischoff, how they were able to work out a deal when, even though Dennis Rodman was still playing basketball, they were able to still work out with his agent. It was as smooth deal as ever where they would bring him in and have him part of their uh, wrestling factions right there. And you just knew a guy like Dennis Rodman at the end of the day. I mean, say what you will. And if Phil Jackson, I think, should have known better, I will, I will admit when looking at it, it did seem kind of... He slighted him a little bit, only because you did it during the finals. But at the same time, too, Phil Jackson kind of... You got to remember... You did this before with Rodman where he was mentally drained. You allow him to take a break and go party off somewhere to get your mind relaxed. And I believe that was in their final year, the 97-98 season, where he decided to go to Vegas, decided to party it up. Remember, he was uh, dating Carmel Electra at this time. And, of course, Jamie McCarthy, too, before. But Rodman was a guy right here, when you look at why Phil Jackson was such a great coach. And uh, we're going to just go ahead and uh, finish it up here momentarily. I'm just going to go ahead and keep it for up to an hour right now. We're closing in here on 45 minutes. But 
here's the thing where I get a little frustrated with people. And as we look at, the, we dig a little bit deeper in this last dance documentary series. Well, another thing that really stood out to me for watching this series, who really looked damn good for all, all this, is Phil Jackson. Why is he the greatest coach of all time? Even though he's not the all-time winningest uh, coach of all time in NBA uh, history, I mean, when you uh, look at it, I mean, uh, Phil Jackson right now, as far as we look at, he is, let's see, he is uh, seventh on that list with 1,155 victories here. I mean, in that regard. And when, when you think about all the stuff that he's put into right there, a lot of people always gave the criticism, well, if you give me uh, Michael Jordan and like uh, Sky Pippen or Shaq and Kobe, you give me that talent, I can win with that too. Not really. No. Because let's, let's just say Chuck Daly had that talent. Chuck Daly could probably get one or two championships out of that. But Chuck Daly did not bend over backwards for a guy like this, Robin. Listen, Chuck Daly, like, uh, cheered on a guy like Dennis Robin. He wanted to be in his corner. But as far as, like, the personal off-the-court issues, I don't think he was anywhere near, like, the coach that he needed in his life. I mean, when you think about it. I mean, this guy right here, overall... I mean, when we uh, look at things, I mean, I mean, and, and by the way, that's regular season career victories. He's uh, seventh on that list. Uh, behind, and the list on this goes Don Nelson at 1,335. Lane Wilkins at 1,332. Don Nelson only won the championship as a player. Lane Wilkins, uh, coach of the Seattle Superstocks when he won the title of 79. Greg Popovich, five-time NBA champion of the Spurs, 1,222 victories. Jerry Sloan, 1,221, did not win a championship. I believe he was with the Chicago Bulls as a player before. Pat Riley, five-time NBA uh, champion, and uh, two more as an executive. But you you could kind of argue that 0-6-1 was a coach-slash-executive title right there. Then of course, you got Larry Brown, who won one with the Pistons, Rick Edelman, and then Bill Fitch. And I think Bill Fitch was on there. But anyway, my whole point is with Jackson is this. We need to remember. Phil Jackson, at the end of the day, he knew how to get players in a mental in a proper mental state of mind. He knew what he had to do to get them to relax and to always buy in. So the thing is with Phil Jackson, he wanted to make sure they were not mentally drained. Where it's like doing the stuff like the little exercises, the yoga practices. Phil Jackson was nice enough to let Ramen go have his space. And even though there was some doubt about his whereabouts, but guess what? That's Ramen at the end of the day, he did his job. I mean, he was like, I think the only player on that team uh, following the conclusion of it is where he got released uh, after it. So when I when I look at there right here, I just want to say a few few special shouts right now here to Terrell Barnes and Sports Zone Chicago. Uh, thank you very much, uh, guys, for uh, joining me here. Uh, as I am streaming on Instagram as well right now. Uh, if you guys want to search me, it is at on that CSR. Uh, just wrapping up the last dance coverage. Of the Chicago Bulls dynasty, a lot of people will definitely say, well, it was probably more still revolved around the career and hard times and success of Michael Jordan he had with his teammates. I mean, what was really looking so bad? So let's get into, let's dive into a moment right now. So before we get to Jerry Ryan's, before I spin back to what he said that I played in the beginning before the start of this show about him actually trying to reach out to Phil Jackson to stick around. Let's get back to uh, some of the most influential figures in Michael Jordan's uh, life here, as far as we look at it. And I, I think uh, when you, I'm going to go, because I saw Stephen A. Smith do like a top five yesterday on ESPN, Stephen's A's list, which he does on uh, First Take. And uh, I love uh, watching that show a lot of times. 
and and I, I think these are the most influential uh, people in Jordan's life. If you're gonna go like, uh, top five all time, here's what I would go uh, go off with. Uh, if you were to ask me, uh, number one, I think for the very uh, first person, as we look at Jordan as a significant people in Jordan's life, you had to go with number one, James Jordan, at number five. Why? Quite simple, because that was the guy right there. I mean, it's his parent, his father. I mean, along with his ma. But when you look at everything that he stood in his corner for, when he was there in the beginning, with him, when he won his first championship, or lots of special moments in his NBA career. Remember, a lot of people were making the argument that he retired because he had a lot like the gambling issues that was starting to pile up on his plate. And people thought that he had a meeting with David Stern and probably feel, you know what, uh, you probably should consider uh, stepping away and get yourself uh, checked out. But they both vehemently denied that. And that was not the case uh, at all. I mean, still to this day, a lot, a lot of people like Skip Bales would think it was definitely a big reason why Jordan stepped away. It was clearly obvious when I look back because I had my doubts, but I'll definitely say it was father because when he got murdered, I think that was the ultimate slap in the face where he was beyond like drained at that point. Where it was really starting to like bother him like mentally, and it's like, you know what? Uh, it's it's now is my body game beat up, but I'm like on the grind, defending championships, uh, traveling overseas. All my media commitment, my obligations, excuse me. Sorry, everybody, please excuse me. But uh, with that, not having his father there, it shook him up to the masses. I mean, not, I mean, how would you like to feel of, like if someone close to you, like whether it's your parent or just a loved one or friend that got murdered? And I know. One of you on this list right here could relate, but just when you can't get in touch with them and find out where they're at, uh, that does something to the mind so deeply. You have no idea. And I just feel right there, it just it's like, you know what? I need to slow it down here. I need to take a break away from this game. And you know what? I'm going to pay tribute to my father. I'm going to give baseball a try. So, I mean, he, he went down, he played minor league baseball for a few years, the Barons, and he was starting to get good. I mean, like right around the time once the strike was getting closer, once the strike came, they definitely believed that that did not happen. He'd probably been playing baseball and like converting into a baseball player. But at the same time, Jordan even mentioned many a times in his career, a game of baseball helped him rediscover his love for the game of basketball. And I, I just feel right there, I mean, on that note, you look at right here, and you start to realize right there, I mean, he, he needed that time. It refreshed him. I mean, of course, B.J. Armstrong was nice enough who actually had breakfast with him, uh, talked to him. Want to see how he do and like one on one him one on one with him or a practice. Came back and why do you think he had forty five when he came back? Think about that. He still has that in his Bulls career for the first time ever forty five not twenty three until the Magic playoff series, which until like I said they were backed in the quarter and they eventually lost shockingly. So that's uh, number. Uh, the number fifth important person in Jordan's life. Number four, as far as in Jordan's life, I will go Magic Johnson. Why? Magic Johnson for this reason, because along with him and Larry Bird, I'll put Larry Bird at number three. And it's because, remember, Jordan, when he was going to that all-star game, I mean, the... International game with the Dream Team. He even said that, you know, Magic Johnson is the greatest point guard all time. 
And then Isaiah Thomas is number two. And for that, I mean, when, when you looked at it, I mean, look at how much he's inspired him. He's brought the competitive uh, fabric and fire out of him. Jordan, who was doing a lot more earlier in his career, he had to involve his teammates at some point. He knew deep down inside if he was ever going to win truly, he had to involve everybody else. So that's number four. Three, of course, Larry Bird. Why? The killer instinct. The killer instinct that he did as far as, like, what he brought as far as, like, being the complete opposite of Magic Johnson. He was one of the original all-around trash talkers in the NBA. I'm not saying there weren't many before, but Larry Bird was a tough SOB many a times in competition. Where he decided to shoot a basketball at his hand behind his back, winning three-point contests. I mean, he won three championships in his career. And then you saw how much of a chip he had on his shoulder after losing to Magic Johnson any NCAA tournament, which Larry got brought to the surface. Remember, when Jordan went up against Larry Bird, even though they got swept in that 86 playoff series right there, when he put on that 60-point game, 60-point-plus game, Larry Bird just acknowledged him and just realized the presence of what was coming, along with Magic Johnson. They knew Jordan, it was, he was on his way. It was a matter of time before he got things to click. And I, I just really feel right there what ended up uh, happening there is just that you know what? He just took the ball. He ran with it. And uh, that's what you have. Number two important person in Jordan's life. I'm going to go with uh, who we see in the do- documentary. I'm going to go with Gus Lett in this series. Gus Lett right there, as you heard me throughout this show, remember when Jordan came back and when he was still a little bit shooken up, Remember, and just getting to the realization, his father was not there anymore. He knew that it was going to take some time to get himself back mentally. When he broke down and cried, thinking about his dad or had some issues, Gus was always there. He even said wherever he had to go, he had to make sure Gus was by his side. He was one of the security guards at the United Center, top security guard who actually started off as a patrolman and became a sergeant later on. So you saw where his level of toughness uh, came up in his background and how much that related and connected with Jordan right there and how much he respected that. He always wanted that presence around him. I think So that's number two. And I think number one, um, greatest influence around Michael Jordan as far as like being in his NBA uh, career, well, not influence, but just one significant person in his life, I think you have to go with the late Kobe Bean Bryant. I mean, obviously, Kobe Bryant didn't come until Jordan won his fourth championship. And they crossed paths a couple of times in a couple of regular season games, even the All-Star game. But when you heard how he mentioned him as his little brother at um, Kobe Bryant's uh, memorial... I mean, Kobe Bryant was the closest thing that came close to mimicking Michael Jordan uh, style-wise, win-at-all-cost mentality, toughness on his teammates, and they both definitely agree that it's like sometimes in life when you're trying to be successful, sometimes you can't always win by being the nicest person or the nicest guy. Sometimes you have to be the bad guy in certain roles to kind of get what you're seeking. Uh, whether you agree with it or disagree with it or not. But uh, anyway, as well, we get ready to draw the close right here. I, I will say that for Jerry Reinsworth, trying to get this team back there one more time, it was too little too late. Jerry Krause, I think definitely he got a little bit of, uh, less heat taken off of him throughout the series. But I definitely do believe, too, when we look at it, uh, Jerry Krause, he's still a guy who cannot figure out how to deal with the, the culture in the basketball world, the lineup and everything. The, he was never relatable. 
But at the same time, I was just glad to hear Sky Pippen at least just acknowledge him and just say, you know what? Jerry Krause had, was one of the greatest GMs and definitely deserved a hand in this. It was nice to see some of the beef kind of squashed. You know, some things you cannot take back. So that's going to do it for this edition of Crunch Time here with Charles Bradge Ritchie. Hope you guys enjoyed it. I uh, just want to pay a big shout out to my co-host, uh, Reese Ruler. Uh, sorry you couldn't join me today, but uh, I want to just say I loved having you on here. Whatever you're going through, I hope things are going well. I pray for you, my man. And uh, look to ha- hope to have you on again later on soon. But uh, anyway, uh, feel free at the, at the conclusion of this video, leave me some comments. Or if you guys want to share this uh, page, feel free. Uh, this uh, video stream. I want to hear, hear what was your favorite moments from the documentary. Uh, you can hit me on social media, on Twitter, at Proj Richie, at OnDeckCSR, at MassDLCGR. Instagram, the only difference is it's at MassDLNation. Everything else is the same on Instagram. And you can also check me out on Mixcloud, Charles Proj Richie, and on Anchor and Spotify, Crunch Time with Charles Proj Richie. As always, leave you. Don't be trolling. Be rolling. I gone. Mm-hmm.